Throughout the years, um, as I'm sure you uh, have, just like this story, I have had many different uh, approaches to building relationships. I never put the words on grow relationships small until we began 360, but that's basically what we were trying to do. And um, man, I've been in prisons and hospitals and with the homeless, with the wealthy, the middle class, the lower class, doing... You know, even at 360, when we first started, we had ideas like, let's give water bottles out. And I mean, we we just tried many, many different things. When I was at uh, my last school, university in the Midwest, I, um, I was thinking, now here's a cool way that I can meet people, build relationships, and, um, and then, you know, hopefully uh, they can see Christ in me and, and, and uh, see what happens. And that way that I met people was um, teaching international students how to drive. Because I was uh, in a music school and uh, getting my doctorate degree in, in uh, piano. And at that level, it's a very high level of musicianship. And, and uh, kids from all over the world come to conservatories and universities and whatnot. And so there's a lot of international students. Uh, we learned, I, I taught them how to drive in the cemetery. I figured, hey, if it goes wrong, you know, there's an empty hole around here somewhere. They can throw both of us in. Or if we run over somebody like a caretaker in the cemetery, you know, easy. So um, I had many success stories, um, not all success stories, but one particular guy I was teaching. Um, he came from a culture, and if you've ever been to Latin America, they, they have signs, stop signs, that will say alto, which means stop, uh, and tr- some traffic lights, but a lot of stop signs and whatnot. And, uh, but they, it doesn't matter. Uh, the signs don't matter. It, it basically is first come, first serve, and uh, kind of, not even that, actually. And so, you know, as they approach an intersection and you're there for the first time, you think this is it. And the, but they, they come into the intersection and they just, and they just ride the horn. And uh, that means I'm coming in, get out of the way. But the problem is they're all doing that. And it's, it's a lot of swerving and maneuvering and sweating and, and praying. And, uh, you know, it just so I had one of these guys as my students. This guy had a million-dollar smile, happy all the time. So I'm trying to teach him, you know, you have to slow down, look for the signs, stop. But it, I couldn't quite get through a nice, well, it's not even nice. He was a hardhead. Um, and I, I so, um, but he said, man, I'm ready to take the test. I'm like, you're not ready to take the test. But he insisted on taking the test. So we went over to the DMV. The officers knew me because I was bringing these international students. And you know how it is when you're taking the driver's test. It's the safest you'll ever drive in your life, right? It's 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And you're doing this. And you're looking at the rearview mirror. You never look, right? I mean, normally, but you're doing that, you know. Then when you get your license, you leave. You're eating a Big Mac and a shake and you're driving with your knee, right? But there for the test, you're like that, right? And so he, uh, he's, he, come, he comes in where, you know, I'm nervous for this guy. And then the officer comes out and he's got the big round hat thing, you know, going on and, the, uh, you know, stuff hanging, uh, the uniforms already makes you nervous. This Mr. Smiley didn't look nervous at all. He was like psyched. So went in, got him signed up and everything, got in the, the car with the guy, the, you know, the officers in the passenger side, and, and he, he, I see him drive out of the parking lot. And at the intersection on the corner of this place, 
there's a three-way stop. It's like a T, you know, that comes like this. It wasn't a full intersection, a T. A stop sign on each corner with red flashing lights at each corner. Are you with me? So I'm watching, and there he goes. He's approaching the, the intersection. Wow! Right through it. I would have given $100 to be in the back seat just to watch that officer. You know, because everybody's taking their test like this, not Mr. Happy. I'm like, woo! They came back. That's a good thing. Um, and Mr. Smiley jumps out of the car. He's, that's a win for him. He, just because he made it back alive. That was his win. The officer, I promise you, was more pale than when he left. He made a beeline right for me, the officer, and said, don't ever bring him back. I'm like, well, I thought you could take that. No. Well, can't you get a sec? No. I'm like, okay, got it. All right, got it. I, I was looking, thinking about that, that incident and how different in our minds is a win. You see, this guy thought it was a win because he probably didn't run anybody over. He didn't hit anything. He came back alive. Everybody, you know, was all right. That was a win for him. And in life, we have these different mindsets, these different perspectives on what a high five would be. We're going to call them measurables. Um, it, it could be like a, a first down in a football game. But see, if you're the coach and your team makes a first down and they're like, that's awesome, but all the time has run off on the clock, it really doesn't matter. You see, you might have been happy as a player for a first down, but the coach was wanting a score. I have a mark on my face this morning. It comes from uh, wrestling with my seven-year-old yesterday. And, you know, they're, they're, we're playing around and we're wrestling and he's got this Lego watch thing going. And, you know, I, it, it's like world-class wrestling where the like, ah, you know, giving you the elbow on the back. And it's not, it's not really hurting, but you're like, oh, you know, you're playing around. And then and for some reason, a win for my kids is dad getting hurt. You know, it's like. Ow, ooh, yeah. And then it's like even more because it hurts more. And so I'm, I'm playing around until he takes his Lego watch. And, he'll, you know, with kids, you know, once they get excited, it just goes nuts. And he, and he takes his watch and goes across my face. I'm like, uh, he could tell this one's real. Like, ow. He's like, woo. He's high-fiving his brother. I'm like, what is wrong with you? That hurt. I got a mark. My wife says, I can put makeup on it for tomorrow. I'm not wearing makeup. I'll make up a story. <laughs> there are times when God says to us, hey, examine your measurables. Examine your life to see if your measurable is the same as my measurable. Your win, the same as my win. Your first down marker is the same as my first down marker. That's what we're going to talk about for a number of weeks here. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, here's what we see. God says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? He's like, take a look at what you're calling a measurable. Now, I'm going to say some rough things today. So put your goggles on and your hard hat because that's part of my job description. I've told you. I'm, I'm here to be honest and speak what I consider to be truth to take an assessment of our lives and of the church. In the church today, for the most part in America, my observation is that measurables are absent. What I mean by that is that when we come in and there's a brochure and I can do men's softball or men's Bible study or women's Bible study or this, that, and the other, I can do the Wednesday night chicken dinner and all that, none of which are bad, but you ask yourself, what is the measurable? Tell me where the map is. Like if I go to the softball, why am I in the softball? What is there? Is there a point other than the 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 fellowship? Ah, oh, I said it. Ah, oh, it's the new F word. I'm sorry. Hey, welcome to 360. It's the word that covers it all. It's fellowship. So we'll do fellowship. Okay, that, that was our goal. That was our measurable fellowship. Well, you know, people outside the church do have fellowship. Ah, so hard to say. God is saying, aren't there deeper levels of measurements? Like, we should be going somewhere so that when you get a, when there's a measurable, it's a definite moment of success. It's a celebrating moment, like on a football field. We're going down. We're on the five, and when we move to the fifteen, it's we have four downs to make a first down. And when we make that first down, provided there's time left on the clock, we say, "Awesome!" Because that was our goal. Now that we've reached this yard marker, our next milestone is this. Our next goal is this. Our next measurable is this. Shouldn't the spiritual life be the same? That we have an idea that at least my first bus stop should be here. If we don't have that, if there are no measurables, if you take them away, my personal observation of the church that we have a lot of activity minus the measurables then what happens is we are just aimless. We go from one thing to the next. It's like when we were kids, for some reason, in our culture growing up, after Sunday church, we drove. Where did you drive? Well, that wasn't the point. We just drove. My brother and I sitting in the back seat, my parents, they would get in the car and just drive for the Sunday drive. In our minds, we're thinking of our friends in their backyards playing football. And we're like, this is awful. We're just driving. There's no purpose. Could we at least drive to the store, drive to a movie, drive to the lake, dr drive anywhere, but just driving. And when there are no measurables, we just drive. And you know what happens when we just drive in the church? And we're like, I'm not sure I'm, I'm going anywhere. I'm not sure that I'm arriving. I'm not sure that once I've arrived, that where do I celebrate? Am I here? Did, did I get here? What was here? I don't, there isn't. What happens is we begin to set our own measurables. 
of what is good and what is not good. In fact, I would propose to you that what we do is we start to call things that are good or even mediocre great. We begin to say, man, that was a great dinner. What was great about it? What we had... I can't even say it anymore. (laughs) But after the dinner, where was my spiritual life heading to? What was the point? Where do I go? What's the end goal? And when we don't have a win and when we aimlessly go around and we begin to invent ourselves, we die. We begin to just literally die on the vine. Like, really? This is the adventure that God has called us to, to aimlessly drive out in the country with nowhere to go. You remember that the Scriptures tell us that um, there is a way, Proverbs fourteen twelve. there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it's, way, it's a way to death. You see, we can say, man, this is the way we ought to do it, and it's good for us, without examining the measurables And I'll remind you that the Scriptures tell us that where there is no vision, the people do what? They perish. They die. And I'm just trying to take an honest assessment of what we call a win and where we high-five one another. Last year was probably the most honest year in my life in 30 years of ministry. And it was honest because we sat around the table and we said, everything hits the table. Everything does. We're going to examine ourselves. And we, ch- we cut out a lot. We, we, uh, we carved it out and said, oh, gee, this is just, we're just doing this to do this and there's no measurable. What is the measurable? It doesn't have one. It goes. It goes. It just it leaves the table. It hits the cutting floor. We created this vision frame. For those of you that are new, for those of you that have seen it, uh, you'll, you'll understand it. But everything that we do now goes through this frame. On the right side is our mandate, which is to grow relationships small and live large in the real adventure. The story that we heard with Terry this morning. That's the real adventure. That's the thing that causes us. When we're talking behind the scenes, if you read the 360 Weekly, when we're when I'm talking to leaders around this place, they're like, man, I got a story for you. This, I mean, that's where it picks up. Nobody, nobody, uh, we're, we're not excited about, okay, let's make sure uh, you got a key for the kitchen, right, uh, Jason? Okay, cool. All right, you got a key. I mean, we're not excited about that junk. We're excited about people. That's why we pour our lives in growing relationships small. We're not excited about, let's, let's create a new program. Oh, well, that'd be cool. We'll get a lot more people in. Who cares? It's the stories of people on the bottom of the, of the frame. It's our map. This is the big circle. We have act groups as our mid-circle. I can't encourage you enough to get into an act group. It's where relationships begin to grow small. And I believe, uniquely, we have a small circle. We very much believe intentionally in putting in our operating system person-to-person relationships. 
growing relationships small. On the left side of the frame are our values. I won't go into those today. Again, if you're getting 360 weekly, then uh, you'll understand I'm going through a 16-week explanation of all these. Simplicity, relational intentionality, uh, uh, defined leadership, and uh, courage with humility. We're starting today at the top of the frame, which is our measurables. And then after we spend a few weeks on this, we're going to branch out into some measurables of our own spiritual life with prayer, with uh, giving, with giving out to other people and, and whatnot. But on this frame, we believe that as a person begins to grow spiritually, they grow like a child. And when you're raising a child, you'll know if you've raised kids, that so much of that early stage is imitation. Look how I'm eating the soup. See, I got the spoon like that. It's horizontal, and I stick it down there, and I, 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 I do, you know, I just pick it up like this. And then they take the spoon, and upside, it's upside down, you know, it goes on their shirt. You say, no, 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 you got to turn it like this. And, and then they, they do it again, and then you take their hand, you turn it like that, and you keep turning. And, no, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> had a moment. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, and and you, they're imitating. As a parent, as a parent, I will tell you, some of the most happy moments are when they reach the next stage of initiating. They're eating soup on their own. You know, as parents, we must look like morons to those who are not parents. Oh, they're eating soup. Oh, give me a high five. They're doing it. When they start going potty by themselves, huge. Why? Cheapskates saving money on diapers. For me, that was a big one. I'm like, awesome. No more diapers. I'm saving $84 a month. But they're doing it on their own. When they're driving on their own, mom and dad are no longer taking them to the mall all the time. All of these moments are measurables. Shouldn't we have those in the church? Shouldn't we be so focused and have so many conversations and put it into our operating system that when we're growing spiritually, my expectation of you is that there will be an imitation. And when we reach that level where I know that you're imitating, now I'm going to encourage you, as we'll talk about next week, to initiate it on your own. And then once you're initiating, don't stop, but start instigating it in other people. And they're very marked defined moments of celebration of measurables. Subtract those from the, from the typical church experience that I've had. Maybe you're different, but I've had, and we're just driving around in the country roads. We focus today on imitate, the power of imitation. Whether we like it or not, by the way, we're imitators. Look around the room. And you'll not see, as far as I can tell, any any um, one wearing like a Middle Eastern tunic. Now, if we lived in the Middle East, we may be wearing that because we're imitating each other. The style of shirt that I'm wearing, my jeans, my shoes, my glasses, fashion and style are set by imitation. Look at kids, for example. Huge. Think about silly bands. Everybody know what a silly band is? They're silly, and they're a band. That's it. I mean, the little shapes and whatnot. But once it starts to catch, and Johnny and Mark and Janie have silly bands, you better believe you will be standing at the store buying silly bands. It's the power of imitation. And we think, oh, those are kids. Oh, really? We're the same. Are we not? 
I mean, as adults, the things we drive, the clothes we wear, the style of hair that we have, all of those things are because other people have something similar. This can be good. This can be bad. We imitate both good things and bad things. As we know, kids come home from school and they learn things from other friends that they're against our, our mantra, well, how come Johnny gets to do this? And we say, well, McCoys just don't do that. We do, we do it differently. And um, so this week, um, there's, a, there's a kid in, in the class. I hope he's not in this room. Uh, I'll make up a name. How about that? Uh, his name is uh, Joe. Uh, and his last name, unfortunately, is McCoy. And so this week... Uh, you know, just a couple days ago, I'm like, well, McCoy's, we don't do that in our family. Well, Joe does it, and he's a McCoy. I'm like, really? We're going there? Is that where we're going? Really? <laughs> Proverbs 13:20 says this, he who walks with the wise will grow wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. Look, when I look at my experience as a Christian, I would like to say as a pastor that the greatest thing that influences you as a, as a Christian are my sermons. I'd like to believe that. But it's not true. It's just not true. I have listened to some of the greatest speakers. In fact, yesterday I was reviewing a message by Bill Hybels, one of the pastors that has just kind of uh, had much influence on my thinking and just incredible, incredible preacher of, of God. I have read some most incredible books. I have had some most incredible Bible studies and Bible teachers, as many of you have. But my proposal to you is it's not sermons or books or poems or films or songs. It's not Bible studies or commentaries or scholars or TV preachers or any of that. My proposal for you is that the greatest transformation that you have as a Christian will come from someone who's close to you, that you've watched their life and you say, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. As a musician, when I went to music school, when I was 18 years old, my first year, like this film said, was a blur. Uh, if you've ever seen the film Animal House, uh, if you haven't, don't. But if you have, that was my first year of college. Um, back then, I would have called that measurable fun. Um, now I call it uh, hedonism, <laughs> my life, not, I'm not blaming anybody else, but the way I lived, uh, just total, what, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, and drink, and drink, and drink, and be merry, and all that. And then the second year of college, I didn't have a spiritual experience, but there was a girl who played piano. Her name was Betsy Plummer. I'm being very careful, my wife is sitting right here. <laughs> Betsy had fiery red hair, and I'm telling you, she could play like I had never seen anyone play. And at that point, I had already studied 12 years of piano since I was six years old. Something flipped inside of me that day, like a light switch. And I said to myself, not out loud to anybody else, 
I am going to play like Betsy Plummer. From that day on, eight hours a day, seven days a week I practiced. I took Christmas Day off for 12 years. And I had had some incredible teachers from some of the greatest institutions in this country. It was imitating one person. The power that of imitation. I want you to think about your life. Why has your life changed? I promise you it has not been a, a, a great sermon or a great book. It's been by that individual. You look at him and say, I want to be like that. I am transformed despite seminary, to be honest with you. Despite all the things I learned in a classroom, three-fourths of which, of course, you forget when you get out and live in the real world. But there was a lady that when I was going to seminary who was in her 80s, who was to date the most on-fire, deeply passionate person for Christ I've ever met. I saw this woman on her knees praying and weeping for others. She had a, a relationship with the military. We had hundreds, a minimum of 500 soldiers into Louisville every Saturday night. I saw hundreds after hundreds after hundreds after hundreds after year after year come to Christ because this 80-year-old lady would be on her knees weeping. Her influence in my life was galaxies away from what I was learning in a classroom. Galaxies. I saw her invite people into her house to have dinner. I saw her have soldiers in her house, homeless in her house. That She, she created bedrooms in this old house. It was three stories. Bedrooms in her house. Every weekend, there was somebody sleeping in her house. Life-changing. Because that one person, her son was killed as a missionary on the field in Bolivia, got bitten by a, a venomous snake. He was buried and dead in the ground for four days before they contacted her. She says, I've got to go to the grave of my son. Her and her husband, he was stronger than she was. They traveled to Bolivia by donkey. It was a 10-hour travel, a 10-day travel through thick jungle up steep inclines. Her husband couldn't make it. She made it. This was the fortitude of Helene Royster. I, I have a picture of Helene because the imitation of her changed my life. We cannot underestimate the power of it, good or bad. I'm taken by the fact that John, the Apostle John, had walked with Christ and claimed to be his best friend. But the power of influence that this man had over his friends, the other disciples, is astonishing to me. Because we have this passage after the resurrection. Now, if you walked with Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, for three and a half years, don't you think that you would be influenced by him? I would. 
And yet they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. For heaven's sakes, they saw the Son of God crucified, martyred, executed, killed, murdered, thrown into a hole. Three days later, they've seen him. And after that, we read in John chapter 21 and verse 3, John says this. Hey, you know what? I don't know what's happening with this whole Jesus thing. I'm going to go out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. I'm like, really? Just that after all the things that you've seen, all the things you've experienced, one little phrase from John's like, I'm out of here, man. I'm fishing. Okay, we'll go too. We're influenced by that. We cannot underestimate the power of imitation. All right. Here's where it gets rough. And I promise I'll be nicer after this. In the church, we run like a herd. We run together as a group, a big group. And when we run in a group, whether we like it or not, subtly, we're being imitators by things that we see. If you run in the community, I believe that even our country, from where we started to, just subtly, 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 we're like, well, that that doesn't really matter. Well, 50 years ago, things that don't matter now mattered a lot. Things 50 years ago that didn't matter. I mean, the things I see on TV, I'm like, it's shocking. And when you have kids and they're watching, and you see commercials, like, really? I grew up on Dick Van Dyke where they had to pull the covers up and they were in separate beds. I mean, dude, there, there, are, there are things in commercials nowadays that as a middle schooler, when I grew up, I'd have been like, wow, i got to rerun that. You know, that's a big deal. It's shocking, right? It's that erosion of imitation. Like, oh, well, then, that's, then that, that's okay. Then, Okay, so here we go. In the church, which I love as I love my country, what's happened is that we've lowered the bar so far down of what's hard or what's not hard. I mean, when I when I look at at things, I, I'm like, man, really, that's that's hard anymore. And 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 what we call great and what we're we're high fiving and it and you you feel the bar, right? I talk to so many people that feel the bar of church. Go down and down, and what? And when you read and compare it to even 150 years ago, of those who went out and risked their lives in the 1800s, that's why I'm always encouraging: read the old guys, look at their lives, imitate that. Don't look around too much in the big church and imitate that, because what will happen is you too will come to a place where the bar is only inches off the ground, and we call that great or hard are sacrificial. I know this because I know the numbers of the church. We're going to talk about giving in this in this measurable thing here. And I'll let you know when we're going to do it in case it really offends you. That way you'll, you'll take off that Sunday. It shouldn't. It should be something we embrace. But this numbers are clear. 97% of the big herd of church says, no, I'm keeping 98% in the wealthiest country for myself. To give God 10%, uh uh-uh, not doing it. 
That's why I'm saying be careful of imitating that. Jesus was not always a nice guy. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. He says this of the Laodicean age, which is a church that says, hey, you're luke- Jesus is saying you're lukewarm. You, you, you've lowered the bar to a place that you're lukewarm. He says to them, as I believe he would say to, the, to us, hey, you say, I'm rich. Give me a high five. We're doing awesome. We're so, look, look at everything. Look at the beautiful lights. Look at the beautiful music and the sound system. And, and all, look at all that. We're rich. You say, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But Jesus says, the indictment is that you're unaware. You do not realize that you're wretched. Ouch. Pitiful. Ooh. Poor. Ah. It's like world-class wrestling. Blind. Gah, naked. Pop. Oh, that, that's... Let me go back. The Lord is my shepherd. I love that part. Those are hard words to read. But Jesus would love us enough like a parent would do tough love on his children and say, wake up, guys. Come on. Don't lower the measurable so low, so close to the ground that you live your whole life thinking that you give, should give a high five. And yet I'm up here as the coach saying, no, no, no. You're, you're, you have blindness and, uh, of what is hard and what is sacrificial. You have a, a sense of wealth that's no wealth at all. That's not rich at all. There's a, there's a moment where we say, gosh, if we're not careful, we'll become like that. My call to this generation, to this church, because I know that in this age, even preachers have said, let's make it 101. I can't. When I go to sleep at night and I'm speaking to God and when I'm waking up before God, I cannot not give you the truth. I cannot call a touchdown what is not a touchdown. I can't give a high five when it's just a mini one. I have to. Now, some people may say, that's too rough. I don't like it. That's all right. My wife always reminds me because I'll say, man, was that harsh afterwards? And she goes, it's the message is truth. And sometimes we need that truth. In a football game, if you almost make a first down, they don't move the markers so it is a first down. When they stand there, you've seen them, right? You know football. I know football a little bit. And when it's close, they do that, right? They don't, they don't go to the guy who's standing there with the pole, the marker pole, and say, move it back a little bit. They'll get a first down. Perfect. First and ten. God is not moving the truth for 21st century Americans. I love you, by the way. I'm going to show you a picture. If we can bring up this next picture. This is a picture of Easter Sunday in Nigeria. One week ago. Where Christians fear for their life. And a bomb has just gone off. And killed 25 of your brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria. My American Christian brothers and sisters, we do not understand what hard is 
anymore. This is hard. I can't encourage us enough to look, to look, to look, to say that is immeasurable. So that when we say, ah, gee, really the sound, the speaker was cackling. I've had it with that, man. That's not hard. They ran out of honey buns. 360. Oh, yeah, I'm calling it 359. Oh, just came up with that. They asked me to be in an act group before I became a leader. I don't get that, and I don't like it. That's not hard. In fact, when I look at this image, nothing I did this week was hard, although I thought it was. Nothing I did was hard compared to that measurable. Old Church of Christ, redefine, recalibrate what is hard and what is not. So I have... um, I'm struck when I read verses like Hebrews 11. There were those who were tortured, refusing to be released, that they may gain even a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. That means leather with metal in it where they rip flesh out. That's not easy. Even chains and imprisonment. That's not easy. They were put to death by stoning. That's not easy. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the grounds. These are the people that came before us that understood what hard was. So the very next verse in Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, because of all these measurables, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of measurables, that these guys, Jesus is saying, look at them, or else you'll lower the bar to the floor so low that you'll think great is great, and it's not even mediocre. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin of apathy that so easily entangles. Oh, it's so easy. I know as a leader of a church that's desperately putting every fiber, every ounce of our being to raise the bar how hard it is to change the minds of American Christians. To teach what is really hard. So I have three challenges for you if that wasn't enough. (laughs) Are you okay? The first challenge is this. Be careful who you imitate. Choose carefully who you imitate. Because if you choose mediocre, you will become that. My second challenge to you is this. Choose high. Pick high. Run with people who weep 
for others. You notice I didn't say run with people that know a lot about the Bible, although it's not a bad thing. Run with people who put it into action. Run with people who are sacrificial. You know, I see Chuck Parr sitting in the room today. Chuck is one of the premier drummers, jazz drummers in this city. And because I have a music background, I know that. And our, our band, tremendous musicians. But I've played with Chuck before. And there's something that happens as a musician. It's a phenomenon. And I, I, I'm a pretty decent player. But there's a lot of musicians that are better than I am. And when you play with musicians that are better than you are, guess what happens? You elevate. It's, it's weird. It's a phenomenon. I'm playing with guys like Chuck, and I'm like, dude, I never did that before. That was cool. It just elevates. It takes you to a new place. If you get close to other Christians who are weeping, who are giving, who are serving, who love their husband, who love their wife, who are living out the Christ life, I promise you it will do better than any sermon, book, story, podcast, preacher, any of that. It will elevate your playing and you'll think, wow, I'm playing in a new level. I love the book Blue Like Jazz. Many of you do, I'm sure. In the, in the preface of that book, Donna Miller, the author, says this, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourselves. It's because of the outcome. It's all about the outcome. Wow. I like the outcome of that guy's playing. I like the outcome of his life. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faiths. I have a circle of men that make a huge influence of who I am. And they range from old to, to young. There's a man sitting in this room, his name is Bob, who wrote, hand-wrote me a three-page letter this week encouraging me to keep in the game. When my father was killed in a car accident, he came to me and said, I'll be your dad. And he has been. The influence is profound. And both my wife and I wept when we read your letter this week, Bob. There's a young man sitting here on the front row. His name is Clay. I emailed him two days ago. I said to him, thank you for what you're teaching me, Timothy. Thank you for the influence. There's a man in this room. His name is Mike who's got the body of a lion and the heart of a lamb. And I've learned more humility by being close to him than anything I've ever read in the Scripture. There's a man named Tom who has grown close to me that has taught me this year how to be a man and what that takes. 
Last week on Easter Sunday morning, I've been going through P90X. I challenge any of you to give it a shot. It's an extreme workout. Easter morning was day 90 for me. I made it six days a week because of my friend Tom. To say a year and a half to me ago, he looked me in the eyes of a leader and he said two words, it matters. There's a man in this room, his name is Brian, who has more of a pastor's heart than I'll ever have. And I got to tell you, and there's more, I could keep going, there's more in this room. The men that I draw close to me, they are the people I imitate. And they are transforming my life. I'm looking at John Gearhart. I can't leave him out. The man has more joy than all of heaven contained. (laughs) And in the worst hour of my life, I know who I will call for encouragement. These are the people that change our lives. It's not truth. It's truth lived out. Choose high and your life will be different. Finally, my challenge is to you. For those of you that are further in your walk, be imitatable. I like that word. No, I love that word because it doesn't mean perfection. Two days ago, I called one of our leaders and I said, I'm calling you to apologize. Because the last conversation I had with you, I was kind of crabby. It happens. She automatically said, no, you don't have to. But I didn't think anything about it. I said, well, I did. The last two hours where I'm sitting here trying to study for this weekend, I can't get past it. The Holy Spirit is saying to me, you're a crab. <laughs> I'm like, I know I'm a crab God. No, call. I'm, I'm okay. She's okay. Whatever. You know, I'm a crab. You're a crab. I'm like, I know. I'm like, I'm over here. You're a crab. Okay, I'm a crab. <laughs> Hi, I'm sorry. I'm a crab. <laughs> she goes, that doesn't matter. I'm like, it does matter. Because I'm going to be imitatable. And it's okay to say I'm sorry. It's not about perfection. It's about being imitatable. Can you say the words that the Apostle Paul says? Can you say these words? He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I urge you to imitate me. Think about how bold those words are. Can you say that of your life? I urge you to imitate who I am and how I'm living. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes this, "For For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. We worked hard. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. The Bible says if you preach the gospel, you live by the gospel. He's saying, I have that right, but I didn't do it just for me. I didn't do it just to earn a buck. I did it in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. So often, even with our holiness, I want to be right with God. I want vertical peace. I want vertical joy. And God said, that's all good. But do that to be a model. 
It's an impetus. It's, an, it's the engine that says, here's why you walk with Christ. So that younger people, other people, colleagues, people above you can see that it's real. Be imitatable. It's always attached to Christ. First, 1 Corinthians 11. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. Paul told the young Timothy, Paul said it clearly. Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.12, set an example for believers. I love this. In the way you talk, in your life, in love, in faith, in purity. He didn't say anything about knowledge. The way you live out your life, set an example. Later, in verse 15, he says, Be diligent in all these things. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Let me end with this story that you, some of you know very well. In the beginning, God created something that has spun throughout our humanity, a, a process. An orange tree gives birth to an orange tree. Um, a, a human gives birth to a human unless science comes in and screws it up. And we'll be making rabbits here in a few years, but that's the way God set it up. And there's a phrase in there, according to its kind. Let be everything multiply according to its kind. That is what Christ calls us to. Go into the world and imita be imitatable, to make disciples according to who you are. Okay, you, you remember the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. He was an older man, and um, God came to him and said, You're going to have a child. Surprise. Too old to have children. For biologically. But God said, I'm going to do something miraculous. After a number of years, he had the child. His name was Isaac. He became the prize of Abraham. And then God says, I'm, going to want, I'm, I'm about to build a nation in Abraham, so I've got to put him to a test. I've got to have a measurable to see if he can hit it so that I can build this nation. So we asked Abraham of something very odd. He said, I want you to take your prized child and I want you to take him to the top of Mount Moriah and I want you to lay him down and I want you to drive a dagger through his heart as a sacrifice. And when you read that story, you think, wow, God, God wasn't going to allow that to happen, I don't believe. But he needed to test Abraham to see how far with God he would go. Abraham finally, he raised the dagger and I believe that God, who made all the muscular structure, at the moment where he was going to go down with the knife, God knew it. it you know, because we were like, okay, go, ready? I'm going to do it. When we're really not going to do it, you know how that goes? Like, I'm going to do it. I really am going to do it, right? But no, I believe that because he created us, God knew that moment where he was, okay, this is it. And he stopped his hand. On that journey... To that mountain. I want you to look in Genesis chapter 22. He took some servants, two servants with him. Abraham did. Early the next morning in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 3. Abraham got up. A man in his 90s. You with me? He loaded his own donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when the 90-something-year-old man had cut his own wood, that was hard. The servants watched the old man cut the wood. 
for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him about. On the, and on the third day of riding on a mule with the wood that he had cut, third day, third full day, he saw the place in the distance. He still had a long way to go. And then climbed the mountain. This 90-something-year-old man. i got to imagine that these servants watched Abraham in silence, riding with his son beside him, his prized son, with tears probably at times streaming down his face, never whining, never whimpering, never blaming God, never with a bad attitude, never using these words, this is hard, never. They watched him. They watched him. Day one, day two, day three, and in the distance, they watched him. Abraham, in verse 5, he turns to his servants and he says this, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. It's the first time in the Scriptures the word worship is ever used. Now watch this. You ready? You want to know what the second time worship, where it's used, and who it is? Abraham's servants. When they went to look for Isaac on a very long and hard journey. They learned from an old man who did hard things. People need you desperately to be imitatable. We're looking for measurables. I'm looking for joy. I'm looking for humility. I'm looking, I'm looking, aren't you? When we want to lower the bar, it's not going to be truth that makes a difference. It's going to be you that makes the difference. Can we close today with a very short film? Check this out. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll need you to remind me that I should obey God. That I should obey God. I'll act like I don't have any problems. I'll need you to show me how to share my struggles with others. I want to have a lot of money so I can buy what I want. I'll need you to teach me that my things belong to God. That my things belong to God. I'll struggle with my looks and appearance. I'll need you to remind me that God wonderfully made me. I'll tend to think about myself before others. I'll need you to teach me that the last will become first. The last will become first. The last will become first. I'll think I'm a lot smarter than I actually am. I'll think I'm a lot smarter than I actually am. I'll need you to show me how to learn from God's wisdom. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll need you to show me how to speak the truth. In love. In love. I'll look for happiness in many different places. I'll need you to show me that joy is found in following Christ. I'll find myself stuck in bad habits. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you. I'll need you. I'll need you. I'll need you. To point me toward Christ when no one else will. To point me toward Christ when no one else will. And uh, may I say something? I need you. And you need me. And you need the person sitting close by to you. 
this is how we fulfill what God intended for us to fulfill. Let's pray.